We all love a good sunset. At least I assume that you enjoy sunsets. I guess I, guess I shouldn't, but I don't know why you wouldn't, because they're wonderful. They're beautiful, really, really, really pretty. There's nothing like you know, if you're driving down the road to see those bright reds on the horizon, especially, it's going to go on for a minute, just driving across the Lurling Wallace Bridge by the amphitheater, and you can look off down the river. And you see the glowing red reflecting off the river. It's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful, and we love it. Uh, I know that my son Jackson loves them. Uh, he got up one night, and my wife tells me it's more than one night, just to come inform us how beautiful the, the sunset was. Um, he really wanted us to go, go look at it. He was really, really excited. But you know, the sunrise is really pretty too, right? Yeah, it is. I promise it's there if you're not awake for it. My kids aren't. They're not rolling out of bed, praise the Lord, to come get me to, to, to look at that. But the sunrise is actually very, very pretty in its, own, in its own right. I mean, think about it. If you've seen it, the world is shrouded in, in, in darkness. Maybe you get up early before the sun is up and you open your blinds because you're a crazy person like I am to stare off into the darkness. And it's just dark. You can't see anything. But then you, you start to see that, that faint glow on the horizon. You know, the, the dark starts to recede just a little bit. Everything takes kind of a, a gray hue to it. And then light slowly starts to spread. You get a, a beam here, a beam there as the sun begins to come up on the horizon. And the darkness, it, it slowly begins to, to fade away because it's been chased away by the light of the coming dawn. Now, last week, uh, in the end of 1 Samuel chapter 2, we saw the, the, the horrible state of the priesthood in Israel. You have the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, who are taking advantage of the people in every conceivable way. They are robbing men and women alike of their service to the Lord. And in doing so, they themselves are acting with great disdain for God. Then you have their father, who was like a senior priest, and he wasn't a whole lot better. He himself was benefiting from their wickedness by eating the meat that they were pilfering from the people. And he was doing very little to restrain them. And so the Lord had determined that he would put them to death for their evil. And this, their death, it would serve, Hophni and Phinehas' death, would serve as a confirmation for Eli that the Lord had rejected his entire household. So everything going on with Eli, everything going on with his sons and the priesthood, it, it, it served to highlight just how bad things were in the nation of Israel. You probably remember that this is taking place during the time of the judges when the nation kept giving itself in worship to false gods, as it was led into false worship of those gods by the very people that they were supposed to drive out of the land that they did not do because they did not honor the word of the Lord. And so the Lord would give them over to their enemies for their rebellion because of it. And this would last until they, they would cry out to him and being merciful and being faithful to his covenants, the Lord delivered them over and over again. And then they would turn right back to their false gods. The nation 
is continuing to spiral down deeper and deeper into depravity. Things just keep getting darker. They just keep getting worse. And yet we've also seen that there is some light in the midst of all the darkness. There's the child Samuel, who is faithfully ministering to the Lord at the tabernacle. You know, while the children of Eli are off proving themselves to be worthless, bringing themselves under the judgment of God, you have the child of faithful Hannah, who is growing in favor with the Lord. Hophni and Phinehas are abusing the people, but Samuel is growing in favor with the people. And in our, our text this morning, I believe we see is that the little burning ember among the great ash heap begins to grow into a true flame. So if you will, take up with me in 1 Samuel chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 1, and it says this. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli, and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called Samuel, called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call you, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, Here I am. And Eli said, What is it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also, if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. 
and Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have your word, that we can open it, that we can read it, that we can consider what it says and how that comes to bear on us. Most of all, Lord, we thank you for your word that it reveals to us our desperate need for salvation and of the salvation that you have supplied for us in Christ. We thank you for the promise of the Spirit who comes and opens our eyes to know what is true, who awakens us from our spiritual death, who causes us to be born again. We may repent and believe. And so, Lord, we pray for your Spirit to work this morning, work through this word, to open our eyes to what is true, that we may walk before you in a way that is pleasing to you, that brings honor and glory to you, as we look to Christ, our Savior. Amen. So, so there's three movements in the text, the first being that the word of the Lord was rare. So the first verse, uh, we see the continuation of a pattern that was begun uh, in, in chapter 2 and kind of worked itself out through chapter 2. You know, there you would have Eli's sons who would be presented in all of their wickedness, and then it would be followed with a contrasting picture of Samuel. So now you have Samuel who is being contrasted, I think, to Eli. The Lord is rejecting Eli's entire house. He's taking the priesthood from them. You saw that right at the end of chapter 2, this oracle that's given against Eli, and then we open chapter 3. Samuel is serving the Lord in the tabernacle. And then the text says something that maybe to us kind of comes across kind of funny. It, it, it sounds strange. It says, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. And you may be thinking to yourself, okay, well, they had the law of Moses, and they had the writings of, of Joshua, so surely, in some sense, it wasn't you know, rare. You know, they had access to that, and that, that's, that is true. They did have that. Granted, we would also say that it, it's obvious that the priests were not leading or teaching the people to be faithful to the law, as they themselves were not honoring it and were actively preventing Israelites from worshiping the Lord according to it. But the thing is, the law isn't what is in view here in verse 1, and we can know that because of the clarifying sentence that's next, where it says, there was no frequent vision. A, a vision was a means by which the Lord would communicate with his prophets. And so in those days, incidents like what we read about in chapter 2, starting in verse 27 through 36, those were the exception. That, that wasn't the rule. So we have that. But we would also be right to say that it's not an issue of there just, well, there's just nobody who's qualified in Israel to speak for the Lord. That's why the word of the Lord is, is rare. Well, no. The Lord would raise someone up uh, when he wanted to speak to his people. The man of God in chapter 2 shows that that's the case, that that is true. No. 
the word of the Lord was rare because the Lord was withholding it. And the rarity of God's word was an act of judgment on Israel. You know, typically when we think uh, about judgments of God, we might immediately think about something like the plagues on Egypt. You might think, you know, famine of, of, of food, locusts coming down, devouring everything. You maybe think of the Israelites being conquered and removed from the land. But those aren't the only kind of judgments that we see in the Old Testament. Look with me at uh, Amos chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. It says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, and from north to east, they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. The situation in Amos is that God had promised physical affliction that was coming upon the people for their many, many sins. But the judgment wouldn't stop at that. When all of the calamity came upon Israel, they would seek after God. They would seek to hear a word from Him, only to be met with silence. And they would look around everywhere, but no word would be found. I want you to imagine like, the terror of a small child who has wandered away from their mom or their dad in the store. You may not have to imagine hard. Maybe you've seen this happen or have had it happen to you. And the child's been warned over and over and over, you need to stop or you're going to end up lost. And they don't listen. Then one day, they wander off. They look up and they realize, oh, I don't, I don't see mom and dad. So they call out, and they hear nothing back. What's that child like when they're found? They're frozen in place. They're terrified. They're squalling their eyes out because they just knew they were lost forever. They called out and didn't hear a comforting, comforting word from mom and dad. That's the judgment in Amos. You've continually wandered now the Lord is not going to answer when you cry out. But this is not just for later on in Israel's history. That's where they found themselves right now, in the time of the judges. And it provides, I think, even more clarity for us on the state of Israel at this time. The restraining effect of God's grace has been removed with the absence of His Word. No word of warning or correction is coming, and in that, the nation continues its downward spiral. The Lord has been giving them over to their corrupt desires. You enjoy the darkness? Fine. I'm going to remove the light of my word and leave you to what your heart longs for. We know that that's the case because the Lord tells us in his word that's what he does. 
In Proverbs 29, 18, it says, Where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. This is the result when the grace that is the Word of God is removed. And the light of His Word has been withdrawn. The people plunge deeper into darkness. And so I think this for us should serve as a reminder of how very kind God has been to us. He's given us His Word in the text of Scripture. He had it written down and has preserved it for His people throughout the ages. That's one, I think one of my, my favorite statements that I've ever heard John Piper make is just talking about the Bible and going, God wrote a book. And he gave it to us. We have the Word of God, and we can take it with us wherever we go. You probably have a Bible at home, maybe four. You probably have one or two or three or ten in your office. And I'll say, let me say this. If you don't, right there in front of you is a Bible. That's our gift to you. Take it home with you and read it. It's glorious and it's wonderful. But on top of that, outside of the, the physical copies that we can hold in our hand, you probably have a Bible app on your phone and on a tablet and maybe on a kid's tablet. You know, it literally goes in your pocket. I was listening to a sermon by Al Mohler this week. And he was talking about how we get to carry around a little, a little mini Peter, a little mini Jeremiah with us in our pocket wherever we go because of the access that we have to the Word of God. And on top of that, you come here on Sundays and Wednesdays. You hear the Bible preached and you hear it taught. And on Sundays you leave here, you go to your small groups where you get to read the Bible together, you get to talk about the Bible. Is that not enough? I can, I can go on. Do you want more preaching? You have easy access to sermons from well-known preachers, dead ones and alive ones. The Word of God is incredibly accessible to us. Praise the Lord. But are we thankful for it? I mean, how often do we sleepwalk through sermons and, and Bible studies, thinking more about this, that, and the other than the Word of God that's being laid bare in front of us? You know, how often do we take up and, and read the Scriptures but it's out of, out of duty, not delight. Not really thinking about what it is that we have in front of us. It's the Word of God. And God has been tremendously gracious to make His Word so readily accessible to us. So Christian, treasure it. Read it with a thankful heart. But even then, even that is a grace to us from the Lord. Because that that only happens through Christ, by the Spirit, which produces in us this gladness. And Christian, you depend on Him for everything, even to be grateful to Him for the Word that He's made available to you. Now, we're told in verse 2 that Eli's eyesight had begun to grow dim. Now, I think that the author here is, is, is playing on the lack of vision with Eli's own blindness. Obviously, visions were a means by which the Lord would put his word in the mouth of his prophets. But at this time, there was no vision. 
no visions, so there is spiritual darkness in the land as a result. Well, Eli, who is becoming physically blind, as we have seen already, is himself spiritually blind. I mean, think about it. He mistook worthy Hannah as a worthless woman, while his own worthless sons were out here running roughshod over the people. He could warn his sons and say right things. We acknowledge that. He could warn his sons about their sin and about sinning against the Lord while conveniently ignoring his own sin of partaking of the meat that they were robbing from God. His inability to see physically pointed to his inability to see spiritually. And yet the situation in Israel was not hopeless. Come to verse 3. Verse 3 tells us that the lamp of God had not gone out. This was the, the golden lampstand that stood in the holy place. So think most holy place where the ark would have been. Temple curtain, temple veil. In this case, tabernacle curtain, veil. Holy place. This is where the golden lampstand would have been. And so the priesthood, they were responsible for coming in and tending to the lamp to make sure that it continued burning. And in one very practical sense, it did serve the purpose that any lamp would serve. It was to illuminate the holy place so that the priest could go about their priestly duties in the holy place. But it represented more than that. The burning of the lamp stood for the presence of God among his people. But it also pointed to God as the source of life and light for his people. All that is good, all that is true, and all that leads to life is from him. And there, we find Samuel lying down in the tabernacle. I don't think that this means that he was lying at the base of the lamp. I don't think that he would have even had access to that portion of the tabernacle. But he is lying in the temple, uh, the, the tabernacle precinct, rather, where he ministered to the Lord. And it's then that the Lord speaks. And so that's the second act, if you will, in the text. The Lord confirms his judgment on the house of Eli. Now it's in the, the wee hours of the morning when the Lord calls out to Samuel. We can infer that from the fact that the way that it reads in verse 3, the lamp of God had not yet gone out, kind of gives the picture of it's, it's starting to, to dwindle down as it would have having burned throughout the night. So we get the sense that this is happening in the, in the wee hours of the, of the morning when it's still going to be very pitch black, dark, out. And what happens here, it gives me the, like, makes me think of like a thunderstorm that, that comes at night, right? If you've been driving at night, thunderstorm, moon blotted out, you can't really see anything, there's no light around, and then a bolt of lightning streaks across the sky. It just comes out of nowhere and lights up everything. But the word of the Lord has been rare. There's been no frequent vision. And yet, God calls out to his tiny prophet-to-be, to Samuel. Bolt of lightning streaks across the sky. And then Samuel, he does what every child in the history of the world does. Yeah, y'all are laughing because you know he goes and he wakes up his parent figure in the middle of the night. And so, as parents, we take heart. 
Even tiny prophets get up in the night to ask questions and probably use the bathroom and leave the light on and need a cup of water. And Eli then, he responds like every parent has ever responded. Go back to bed. Leave me alone. And so Samuel does. And it happens again. Another lightning bolt streaks across the sky. The Lord calls again. And so Samuel and Eli, they run it back. Did you call me? No. Go to bed. And so then we get verse 7, and it, it, it helps us to understand why this is happening. Right, we read that Samuel did not yet know the Lord. Now, you might remember, back in chapter 2, the same thing was said about Hophni and Phinehas. And so we may come to this and be like, well, why, why Samuel? Why is it saying this about him? He's being, being held out in, in contrast to them. So, so what is happening here? Well, when we read that in chapter 2 about Hophni and Phinehas, there it was meant as condemnation. And the, the text that followed made that clear because there all of their wicked deeds are exposed. They did not know the Lord, and this is shown to be true in how they were acting and treating the worship that was going on at the tabernacle. Uh, they were showing that they didn't trust him by robbing him of worship. And so when it says this about Samuel, what we need to understand is that this is meant as explanatory. And the next phrase, I think, clears that up for us. It says, the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. The Lord had never spoken to him before. This was the first time, and that's significant. As the sun is creeping over the horizon, a new day is beginning to dawn. But I think in this we should also take a glance at Eli's ongoing blindness. It's another example of his spiritual blindness. It takes the Lord calling out three times to Samuel before Eli, the priest, is able to discern, oh, God is calling you. But when he finally does, he's able to tell Samuel what to do. And so Samuel, he goes, lies down again, and this time, the Lord draws near to call out to Samuel. And so Samuel, following Eli's instructions, acknowledges that he now hears the voice of God, and he's listening. And now, the, the call of Samuel here it, it follows an important pattern that may be familiar to you. The Lord called to Abraham, 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 just before Abraham offered up Isaac, he did the same thing with Jacob, but he did it with Moses as well. I want you to consider Exodus 3, verses 2 through 4, where it says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, or to him being Moses, in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned, as one would do. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And so notice the pattern. The Lord draws near. He calls out to Moses with the repetition of his name. And then Moses' response is, here I am. Effectively, I'm here, I can hear you, and I'm listening to what you have to say. It's the same pattern that we see with Samuel's call. 
And so I think what we're supposed to do is, this is a, it's clear that we're supposed to make this connection back to Moses. As a new era began through Moses' prophetic ministry, so too a new era is beginning with Samuel. Ultimately, this is going to culminate in David being anointed as king. But for now, the word that comes to Samuel is about the house of Eli. The Lord says that at the sound of it, all every ear would tingle. This shows up a few other places, all spoke, speaking about the great and terrible judgment of the Lord that was going to come on Israel. And so the idea here is this is going to be so severe, this is going to be so great, it's going to take your breath away. It's going to cause you to take a step back when you hear it. It's going to be that significant, that horrific. You know, Eli, as a priest, he had a duty to preserve the worship of the Lord in Israel, but he wouldn't do anything about his sons who were making a mockery of the worship of God. And so for this, the Lord says that there will be no sacrifice or offering to atone for their sins. And when we hear that, that may come across kind of funny, seem kind of foreign to us, like this idea, like, wait a minute, are you saying that there are, it's the concept of, of sins that are so great that not even the grace of the Lord in Christ could touch them? Like, not even the blood of Jesus is enough to deal with that. And of course, that's not what we're saying. But what we are saying too, also is not that the Lord is, he's not looking down the corridor of time and acknowledging, well, they're never going to turn to me in repentance, therefore they're not uh, able, there's no sacrifice that can be made for them. No, what's in view here is sinning with a, a high hand. I won't read them, but I would encourage you, jot these down and look at them later. Numbers 15, 30, and 31. Numbers 15, 30, and 31 as well as Hebrews 10, 26, and 27. Hebrews 10, 26, and 27. The, the latter, I think, particularly helpful. The issue here is the individual who sins deliberately despite having knowledge of the truth. I want you to think about the situation for Hophni and Phinehas by virtue of their office, by virtue of what they had the privilege of doing. As priests, they were responsible for mediating the, the, the sacrifices that the people were offering for their sins. So in every time someone was coming forward to offer up the sacrifice uh, for the remediation of their sins, to make atonement for their sins, they were being reminded of what that stood for. Their role carried a constant reminder of the truth that man is desperately wicked and blood must be spilled to atone for sins. But even though that this was constantly before them, they rejected it. And so in doing so, they rejected the only means by which their sins would be covered, or could be covered. Their disregard for the sacrifices, ultimately disregard for Christ, whose who the sacrifices foreshadowed. And so there was no atonement to be made for sins. They had access to the means by which sins could be forgiven, and they turned away from it. And turning away from that, there was no, nowhere else to go, nothing else to which they could turn. They would not find it anywhere else. And there's a warning here for us. 
we must hold fast to Christ, who alone supplies atonement for our sins. It is in His blood spilled for us on the cross that we have the forgiveness of sins. Maybe you're questioning even now if you will follow Him. Or maybe you have said that you will, but now that you are starting to feel drawn away. Perhaps it's the momentary pleasures of the world that seem better. Maybe the cost of following after Christ seems too great. But Christ, and Christ only, gives His people eternal life. So cling tightly to Him. Do not be drawn away. For outside of Him, you will find nothing that will pardon your sin guilt and reconcile you to a holy and righteous God. Samuel's response to this devastating message further highlights the difference between himself and Eli's family. He's just received a horrifying message against the man that he spent the majority of his life with. But what does he do? In the morning, he throws open the doors of the tabernacle. He prepares for another day of ministering to the Lord. And now, understandably, Samuel was afraid to tell Eli what the Lord said. And for once, Eli is perceptive. Now, he, he clearly picks up on Samuel's fear and realizes that the Lord has said something specifically against him. He wouldn't have said, may the Lord do so, uh, do so to you and more if you hide anything from me, if he was expecting you know, a word of judgment, if he, if he wasn't expecting a word of, jet, of judgment. But what does Samuel do? Does he hold back? Does he hem and haw? No. He speaks the word of the Lord and speaks it in full. This perfectly encapsulates the rising of Samuel and the fall of Eli. Eli could only half-heartedly confront his wicked sons, but Samuel holds back nothing of what the Lord has said. And then Eli, to his credit, acknowledges the sovereignty of God. And he's absolutely right in what he says. Our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. And beyond that, what's in his heart, we cannot say. On the one hand, we can look at how the text has has presented him, his failure as a priest, both in restraining his sons and in participating in their wickedness, that that may suggest here benign acceptance. Whatever. It's God. He's going to do whatever he's going to do. God going to God. But he's got some things right, too. He was correct in what he said to his sons when he confronted them. What's in his heart? I'm not, I'm not to say. But regardless, the point is that he and his house are going down, and they will be done away with in chapter 4. The Lord is rising up, raising up for himself a prophet who would spread his word throughout Israel. And so that leads to the third act. The word of the Lord was common. So verse 19 through 4.1, that shows that the situation that we found all the way back in verse 1 has been completely reversed. The word was rare. Now the word of Samuel came to all Israel. 
There was no frequent vision. The Lord has appeared again at Shiloh. It's come to Samuel, revealing himself by his word. And the people know that Samuel's words are from the Lord, because the Lord let none of his words fall to ground. This is another important link for us in the text between Moses and Samuel. Moses promised that the Lord would raise up for the people another prophet. And the people would know that the prophet was from God when his word came true. Look at Deuteronomy 18, verse 18, and then verses 21 to 22. It says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And then in 21, And if you say in your heart, How may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. The clear implication there is if the word does come true, then the Lord has put it in his mouth. The Lord doesn't allow it to fall to the ground. You know, the beginning of Samuel's prophetic ministry is like the, the dawning of the sun. Israel has been covered in darkness, but now light is beginning to burst forth as the word of the Lord goes forth. The Lord has established the presence of his word once more at Shiloh. This stands in sharp contrast to what had been going on at Shiloh. The priesthood had been making a mockery of the worship of God, but no more. The Lord is establishing his word in the mouth of his prophet, and now it would spread throughout Israel. And yet, just as soon as these rays of light start to sneak over the horizon, we're going to see that there is still a great deal of darkness. In chapter 4, the people will act with complete disregard for God and for His Word. Rather than taking counsel from the Lord's prophet that He has raised up and made evident to them that He is speaking the true words of God, when plagued by their enemy, the Philistines, they instead choose to treat God like some lucky rabbit's foot. Later on, They're going to reject Samuel's leadership, which we will read and find out that their rejection of Samuel is ultimately and primarily a rejection of the Lord as their king when they demand another king so that they can be like all the nations. The coming of Samuel represents a new day in Israel, and that that is certainly true. But it will also reveal the continued wickedness of the nation. You know, the the darkness may be chased away for a moment, you know, here or there. In David, and then in the early days of his son, Solomon's reign, it's going to seem like the sun has fully risen. And yet the darkness, it kept coming back time and again. They needed new hearts. Hearts capable of receiving the word with with gladness. And Samuel was not the prophet capable of giving them that. The true prophet, who fulfills the promise of Deuteronomy 18, he would come much later. 
that took place in Christ Jesus, our Lord, the one who is the eternal Word of God, and indeed God himself in the flesh. Christ is the full and final revelation of God. He came promising the forgiveness of sins through giving up his own life for his people. But he didn't say that he would just lay down his life and stay dead, but that he would take his life back up again, that he had the authority to do so. And his word did not fall to the ground. The resurrection proves that he is the true prophet who spoke from the Father. In him the Father has been made known. In him the kingdom of heaven has truly come. He did rightly teach the standards and values of the kingdom. He is able to forgive sins. He is able to give us eternal life. He has secured our resurrection from the dead. He has secured a new life in which we may know and cherish the treasure that is the Word of God, that we may receive it with gladness and see it produce fruit 30 and 60 and 90-fold in our lives. And He has given the means by which it does come to bear on every element, every aspect of our life. He promised that He would send the Spirit to His people, and that by the Spirit, that He and the Father would dwell among us. This He secured through His resurrection from the dead. In Christ, a new day has truly dawned in the inaugurating of the new covenant era. Light has burst over the horizon, driving the darkness from the hearts of His people. The Spirit has come, causing sinners to be born again and giving us a new heart. And Christ has fulfilled and has secured the promise of Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. Look at that with me. It says, And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. The word becoming common in Samuel's day was an invitation for Israel to examine it themselves. It would show them where they were failing to live up to their calling and call them to repentance. The word functions in the same way today as it did then. And the Spirit works through the word to accomplish this in us. The Spirit shows us where we fail to meet up to God's righteous standard. He causes us to see how Christ met that standard and supplies us with His own righteousness to rec reconcile us to God. And He applies that righteousness to us, conforming us into the likeness of Christ. By bringing the Word to bear on every area of our life. So receive the word with gladness. Have every square inch of your life reshaped by it. There isn't a single nook or cranny into which it does not reach. It comes to bear on the way Christian students and employees go about their work. 
It comes to bear on our relationships with our neighbors and with our family. It comes to bear on how we spend our time and our money. It comes to bear on how we confront and correct one another in our sins. Too often, I think we're result-driven when we confront and, and correct one another. You know, to get the result that you want, these are the things you need to do, X, Y, and Z. If you put up this barrier, then you'll be able to stop committing that sin. And yes, I mean, there is good practical counsel that we give. One of the first things you'll say to the alcoholic is you need to remove the alcohol from your home. But that can't be all that we offer. Worldly counsel, it's capable of doing that much. I had a friend I was having a conversation with around a particular sin issue, and during the course of our conversation, he asked me, I, I, I want you to remove Christianity. I want you to remove your faith, your knowledge of God, the Bible. I want you to remove all of that from our conversation and from the situation, and then tell me from that what's, what's wrong with what I'm doing. And I think too often that we're, we're prone to approaching the counsel that we give in that way. Maybe not intentionally, but we're looking for a quick fix. Maybe we're pressed from time, our pragmatic minds take over, and we say, you just need to do X, Y, Z, boom, 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 and you'll be all right. Friends, do we trust God and His Word? Do we trust that he works by the Spirit through the Word to form and to shape his people. Christian counsel and correction flows from the pages of Scripture. But is this true of us? Are we bringing one another to the Scriptures when correction is needed? You Say you're counseling someone who is struggling with unforgiveness. Bring them to the Scriptures to remind them of how much they have been forgiven in Christ. Encourage them with texts that show that Christ is the one who helps us to put our sins away. Warn them with texts that speak about how unforgiveness is incompatible with a faithful Christian life. But don't just tell them, get over it. Or advise them to spend less time around that person. We must bring one another to the Scriptures. And trust that the Lord will work through his word to get at the root cause, which is a desires issue. Bring one another to the Bible and trust that it will work in the lives of people to correct, to rebuke, to teach and train in righteousness. They may know and love the Lord. I say moms and dads, I think we have to be particularly careful here. It's really easy in the way that we correct our children to just make it about good morals. Don't hit your brother. That's not nice. It's not ever said in my house. For their own good, we must do the hard work of explaining to our children why they get angry. Talk to them about the sins in their hearts. Tell them they can't just do better and overcome it. Tell them about Jesus and the forgiveness of sins and the new heart that they need that he gives. This is what it looks like for the word of God to be common in our day. It's not just about it being easily acceptable. 
It's about the people of God receiving it with gladness and fruit being born in our lives. All to the glory of Christ.